So I think in a way, this is a, a moment of introspection for Sri Lanka and for the people of Sri Lanka to think about what it would take for them to create conditions that would make them a world-class economy, and they could then prosper their way out of their current problems. It is the week of July 18th, and welcome to a special episode of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's foreign policy podcast. I'm Lester Munson, your host. Sri Lanka is a country in freefall. The president has resigned and fled the country. Mobs of citizens have taken over multiple government buildings. The economy is shattered with a fuel crisis, a food crisis, and massive debts. Today's episode will feature Ambassador Atul Keshap, a career member of the Senior Foreign Service and former U.S. Ambassador to Sri Lanka from 2015 to 2018. After his 28-year career in the State Department, Ambassador Keshap was appointed by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce as president of the U.S.-India Business Council. We are thrilled to have him join us to provide insights on this rapidly developing situation in Sri Lanka. Atul, thanks for coming back on Fault Lines to help us sort this out. Thanks, Les. I'm delighted to be a repeat offender. All right, let's drive into the immediate situation in Sri Lanka. The president has fled. The acting president... Ranil Wickremesinghe, who was prime minister, is hugely unpopular. Can he get anything done in the next few days to address this immediate crisis, or are we going to see even more political and populist chaos in Colombo? Well, let's uh, first of all, let's remember that this is Asia's oldest democracy, and Sri Lankans are very proud of that fact. They have had a parliamentary democracy through some of the worst times any country can experience, including at one point when they had two different civil wars going at the same time. Now, as all democracies are, they're not they're all striving for perfection. And uh, one thing that's really important is that uh, while there is a state of emergency on right now, uh, just imposed overnight, uh, there is also going to be a presidential election in parliament on the 20th of July. So just in a couple of days, there are four candidates, including Ranil uh, Wickremesinghe, and we'll have to see which way the parliament goes. But clearly, these are um, unprecedented times of, of challenge for the Sri Lankan people. And I would just hope and pray that uh, that they can restore um, security and safety, stability uh, and happiness and prosperity for their people while also preserving their democracy, which uh, has lasted since 1948 and before. All right. Let's um, uh, let's talk about some of the long term challenges that Sri Lanka is facing. First, first one of several being debt. The country has been on a year long, years long borrowing binge from the West, from China. How do you parse out the debt challenge for Sri Lanka? So obviously, the um, there is an enormous overhang of debt, and some of it is because of the very long decades of war. Uh, there was a process underway when I was in Sri Lanka, a very careful and painstaking process run by the uh, sadly now deceased finance minister, Mangala Samarawira, working with the central bank governor of the time, Indrajit Kumaraswamy, to figure out a way to reschedule all of Sri Lanka's debts. And this was at a time when uh, interest rates were pretty low. And there was a lot of optimism about the future of Sri Lanka, especially now that the war was over. And there was this feeling that if they could reschedule the debts over time and continue to engage in fiscal discipline, which is a fancy way of basically saying um, cutting expenditures and increasing uh, taxes, then they would be able to service their debt on rescheduled terms and slowly climb out of uh, uh, the situation that they had inherited. Now, um, 
that was starting to work. Uh, by the time I left Sri Lanka, there were several months of import cover in terms of foreign exchange. A lot of debts had started to be um, rescheduled. And um, while, you know, the there was transparency about sort of debts that were publicly known, there was not a lot of transparency about some of the debts that the country had taken on. What's happened since then is that, of course, you've had the pandemic and the tourism economy crashed in Sri Lanka. That's bad luck. The decision on organic farming resulted in even more bad luck. Uh, and then the worst of all is the combination of corruption and um, sort of uh, the government regularly taking more and more um, uh, debts, sovereign debts, that included uh, offers from the Chinese of $500 million credit lines over and over and over again. They're at a point of unsustainability now, and it has resulted in the current economic collapse. Let's talk about the Chinese debt for a second. Um, it seems to me as a, a kind of amateur foreign, old foreign aid worker that China's making, the, the positive view would be China's making the same mistakes we made decades ago, which is they're loaning money to developing countries in a way that's just not sustainable. And you're going to run into a debt crisis at a certain point. The more Machiavellian and probably more accurate view is that they're doing this on purpose to kind of create a political dependency in the countries they're doing it in. But what can we say about the Chinese debt? Do we know what it is? Do we know how much it is? Is What's the transparency of it? And how do you, uh, and then from that, how does the West and how do the other creditors work with Sri Lanka when so much of the burden is kind of in this, in a different category of debt, if you will? So first of all, I'm not of the impression that debt is inherently a bad thing. You know, we take debts to pay for houses. We take debts to put our children through school. Uh, these are good things. We take debts to put ourselves through school in order to get a better job and a better salary. There's nothing wrong with taking debt if it's well-managed and if it's intelligently thought through and if it results in greater revenue or greater prosperity. I think the biggest challenge is that for a lot of the Chinese debt, which I understand is about 15 or more percent of the total uh, sovereign debt, there's no transparency. It's unclear exactly you know, uh, how much there is, what the rates are, uh, what the terms are. And more importantly, uh, this is where it's really critical. Uh, it, those debts have not been productive. It's not like going to college and getting a better degree and then getting a better income as a result through a better job. A lot of it has been sort of white elephant uh, ego projects, you know, the Lotus Tower and the, you know, the Hanban Tota Port and the convention center in Hanban Tota and the eight lane highways in the middle of nowhere down south. You know, if you look at the the kind of the, the debt that uh, a lot of co developing countries have taken on from the development banks, uh, it has long term repayment. It is uh, there's a business case that looks at sort of what the, the return on investment could be for taking that debt. So I think it's a question of whether you take smart debt or, frankly, damaging debt. And this is where if you are in a situation where you're heavily indebted, you have got to figure out how to increase your income. And Sri Lanka has remittances. Uh, it had a tourism economy that I hope will get back on its feet as soon as possible. Um, and of course, it had enormous natural resources and human talent. But a lot of that human talent leads. And so my, my, my feeling about this is that if Sri Lanka can undertake the economic reforms necessary to retain its human talent, to develop really world-class industries in services and manufacturing, I think it could see a flood of investment in, uh, but it has to optimize the macroeconomic climate. And then the debt will take care of itself. You know, if you have no income and you have a towering mountain of debts, and a lot of them are really bad debts, you've got a problem. But if you can work your way out of it uh, by attracting investment, creating jobs, uh, creating a really world-class business environment, 
you'll generate the revenue and you'll get out of your situation. Are you optimistic about Sri Lanka being able to come to an arrangement with its Chinese debtor, Chinese debtors along those lines? I think I don't think they've had a lot of um, aid from the Chinese in this particular moment. I read somewhere on the internet, um, and I can't verify it, that in this moment of acute need, the Chinese have only given about $76 million worth of aid, whereas the Indians this year alone have extended $3.5 billion of aid, including uh, petroleum and medicine, and milk powder, food, uh, you name it. Basically, the, the the stuff that people need to survive in a moment of acute economic crisis. So, uh, you know, I don't think the Chinese have, have necessarily, you know, kind of really put their best game forward in terms of trying to help Sri Lanka. Um, and so I'm going to let them speak for themselves. But I think the urgent issue right now is for the government to stabilize the political situation and hopefully the election will result in greater stability. Uh, they need to work with uh, all of their lenders um, uh, to figure out a way to reschedule or sustain their debts in a way that also allows them to take care of the people. And then, you know, if you look at Sri Lanka, it's an enormously resourceful country, uh, brimming with human talent, some of the smartest people in the world. Uh, when you look at Sri Lanka's history, the last time they were in such a situation, there was sweeping economic reform, and it resulted in a big boom of investment and uh, job creation. And what I'm hoping is that there will be another such boom of economic reform that will really put Sri Lanka back on the global business map uh, and help people uh, live happy, prosperous lives at home in Sri Lanka without having to leave and, and go overseas and, and, and get into the remittances game. Diplomatically said, sir. Uh, all right. I want to ask about uh, something else you mentioned, uh, this decision from the government a year ago on agriculture policy when President now former President Rajapaksa mandated an end to industrial farming techniques and kind of forced uh, farmers into uh, more organic methods, almost entirely organic methods. Part of the reason to do this was to save money on importing fertilizer. Can you talk more about how this policy decision has impacted the situation now in Sri Lanka? So a lot of the um, rural South, particularly, uh, is, uh, you know, working people who work in the agricultural um, sector and have small individual farms. I mean, tiny, tiny little farms. And a lot of them are rice farmers. Um, when this uh, change happened to organic farming, a lot of the rice yields crashed. And so people, you know, went out of business or suffered extreme hardship. Um, I recall earlier in my life when the, one of the, the country that I spent a lot of time growing up in, Zambia, um, at, under you know some form of, I think, desire to uh, protect their people, uh, banned uh, any kind of GMO seeds, genetically modified seeds. And they had a terrible, terrible uh, crash of their rural agricultural economy. And there was actually food hardship and even famine. So uh, I can't tell you how the decision-making led to this point, but it's pretty clear in hindsight that the decision was disastrous for the rural economy, for the agricultural economy. And when you look at the protesters on the streets, they are largely Singalese from the South, although it is a, has been a national phenomenon. But these are people who have felt deep hardship in their personal lives well before the foreign exchange crisis hit. Let's talk about another uh, issue you brought up, uh, Hambantota, which is the uh, the part of Sri Lanka, the homeland of the Rajapaksa family. They've basically controlled uh, 
uh, Sri Lankan politics for for most of the last couple of decades. Uh, a lot of a lot of these infrastructure projects have gone into Hambantota. Uh, why is that bad? Why did they do that? And how do they get out of this problem? So, to be fair to the Sri Lankan people, I don't think they had much of a say in where these projects went. And there hasn't been anything like parliamentary review to see if any of these projects made economic sense. In fact, Hambantota is now a poster child for wasteful and ruinous uh, spending, usually through debt, uh, to build projects that may look good, but are essentially uh, unviable and don't return anything like uh, uh, an, uh, any kind of revenue stream that would allow them to repay the debt. So this creates strategic vulnerability. And it goes back to something you said earlier. You know, uh, I can't, uh, you know, exactly discern what the motivations were, but I can say that whatever the project was, whether it was the eight-lane highways to nowhere or the port or the convention center or the massive hospital, uh, the airport uh, in the middle of nowhere, in fact, in an elephant habitat, uh, you know, there was no review the kinds of which you would see from the Asian Development Bank or the World Bank or from any responsible lender about whether this made sense, whether it would have any return on investment. I think there was just a, a, a stampede to oblige and, of course, saddle the nation with debt. So uh, these projects have proven to have very little economic um, uh, value. And as a result, the people of Sri Lanka have almost had to mortgage them back to the Chinese in order to be able to sustain the debt. Uh, that's not helpful. That's no way to develop a country. It's no way to build institutions in a country coming out of 27 years of war. Uh, it's no way to reinforce the happiness and prosperity of a society. One thing I'm very proud of as an American and working with quad partners like Japan and India and Australia is that we want uh, what's best for other countries. We want them to be peaceful, happy, prosperous, ideally democratic, uh, and to lead better lives than, than they have right now. And so when we look at all these various projects, we look to see whether they make sense. A lot of American and Indian and Japanese uh, development aid is at very reasonable rates, if not grant money, outright grant money. And it's designed with a business case in mind to make sure that it's not an unsustainable debt. So Sri Lanka has experienced some bad luck, but it's also experienced some really bad management by its elected leaders. So this is a good segue uh, into, into my next question. You kind of laid this out, uh, at least to some extent. But uh, b- before we dive into uh, maybe more specificity on possible solutions, can you talk about the, the context of Sri Lanka in U.S. interests and values? We've, we've seen the last several administrations talk about a pivot to the Indo-Pacific uh, to greater or lesser actual reality in terms of U.S. foreign policy. But clearly, the region Sri Lanka is in is more and more important to the United States and our interests every day. How specifically does Sri Lanka fit into that matrix? So Sri Lanka is the oldest democracy in Asia. They're very proud of that. Um, they went through, of course, extraordinarily hard times during 27 years of civil war. And when I got there in 2015, there was almost a renaissance underway. The Rajapaksas had been voted out of power. There was a hope for a more kind of democratic, open, pluralistic, tolerant, harmonious society. And in fact, for a couple of years, things were moving in a good direction. There were important constitutional amendments, economic reforms, but the coalition proved unsustainable and fell apart. And I think the Rajapaksas also did their utmost to ensure the, that that coalition would fall apart by setting various elements of, of it against it itself. 
and also even engaging in that parliamentary and unconstitutional coup uh, in October of 2018. Uh, but the has ultimately prevailed, and now you can see in front of you the results of that, which is the complete economic devastation of the country. Why is it important? Well, number one, um, it's important that societies and nations succeed. We have enough problems with totalitarianism and authoritarianism around the world that we need to see countries that are pluralistic and in their very nature democratic succeed. You, we want to see Sri Lanka be a success unless it sits right on the main sea lanes between the Straits of Malacca and the Straits of Hormuz. If you uh, stand uh, at the, um, the ramparts of Gulf Fort and you look out at the ocean, you can see all of the uh, car carriers and bulk ore carriers and crude oil carriers going right past, you know, on the most important sea lane in the Indian Ocean. So Sri Lanka is very strategic. Uh, it's obviously right underneath India geographically. And um, it's important that Sri Lanka succeed because uh, if they fail, it creates instability in the region. It creates instability on a major sea lane. It's bad for their people. Uh, it results in net migration, um, and it creates an unsustainable economy and culture. So I think there was a lot of desire by America and India and Japan and Australia, UK, many like-minded countries to help Sri Lanka succeed in that crucial uh, post-2015 uh, uh, election when the Rajapaksas were voted out of office. Unfortunately, we've come to a position even worse than back in 2015. And what I'm hoping and praying is that the government and people will work together uh, harmoniously to kind of put things back on track, relying on their democratic institutions, because we've seen what it does to the region when Sri Lanka is racked by war and conflict. It is not a happy picture. It resulted in refugee migration all over the world and hardship, immense hardship for the Sri Lankan people. So I'm hoping that we can back off, get back on track. Um, you know, Sri Lanka's success can prove that there would be uh, hope for any country despite really, really bad times. And so I think we owe it to them to try to help them again, uh, especially now that the Rajapaksas are out of the picture and hopefully there'll be less corruption and a little more probity in public finances. So you were ambassador to Sri Lanka for three years, from 2015 to 2018. Uh, I think a lot, of, a lot of our listeners have a pretty good conception of what it means diplomatically to be an ambassador. But one of your other duties there was, and, and I think of it as kind of a separate thing, you're the head of all U.S. government operations in that country. So when you sit at the head of the table and the country team sits there and meets, you've got a defense attache, you've got someone from Treasury, you got someone from the U.S. Agency for International Development, these other uh, trade and aid agencies, maybe the Department of Labor, the FBI, there's, there's just a a whole bunch of parts of the U.S. government that can be brought to bear on the bilateral relationship between the U.S. and, in this case, Sri Lanka. What of those tools, what of those programs, what of those agencies and departments should we be utilizing now to address this crisis? What do you, you think is the most important thing to be doing? At this moment in time, the absolutely most important service we could render uh, to the Sri Lankan people is to give them world-class advice from the Treasury Department about how to manage the debt and how to manage the fiscal crisis. Uh, obviously, um, you know, they, they are very, very experienced in terms of public debt markets, um, uh, sovereign debt. Uh, the one thing they can't help with is, is things like very non-transparent debts to China and other countries. But in terms of the debts that, you know, are sort of 
transparent and well-known and above board, I think Treasury can do a lot. In fact, when I was in Sri Lanka, we, uh, the taxpayers of the United States spent a lot of money trying to help Sri Lanka get onto a more sustainable path. We had uh, uh, about four or five Treasury advisors who were helping every day in painstaking detail to try to get all of the legacy wartime debts rescheduled, uh, working on the international debt markets. And so that would be, I think, a very valuable service that the U.S. uh, people, the American people, could give to Sri Lanka if the government is inclined. The situation, unfortunately, now is far more severe than it was uh, seven years ago, far more severe politically. Uh, It's also, these are much tougher economic times. Sri Lanka's tourism economy is still limping back to life. The revenue flows are not as good as they were back then. So the the need is even more acute. Um, But I do think the Treasury and its advisors can do a lot to help. Uh, Beyond that, Les, uh, you know, I think that it would be good if we could maybe get together with other like-minded and see how we can help. I'm sure that's probably already happening. Uh, amongst the various governments. But coordination among those like-minded is really important. So let's talk about who the like-minded countries would be. President Biden was in the region a few weeks ago and announced the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, which is kind of another one of these uh, groupings that we're involved in uh, to perform various functions, but mostly to kind of Uh, help us deal with the rise of China and the challenge that China presents to the international order. You named the Quad earlier. Uh, There's the AUKUS agreement between the U.S., uh, the United Kingdom, and Australia that deals more with military hardware and some other things. Sri Lanka is not in this economic framework that President Biden announced. Uh, we've we've stopped as a country doing these multilateral trade deals, right? We uh, TPP was abandoned by both parties, uh, much to at least my regret. I suspect yours and many other people's who think that trade's super important. So how do how do we fit Sri Lanka into these various kind of ad hoc groupings of countries that that we're working with, or is this this kind of more of a bilateral arrangement? So. Less times are tight for everybody. You know, the pandemic has been cruel to national economies everywhere. And I think the era of sort of expecting handouts is over. Uh, I don't think the taxpayers of the various like-minded countries can afford to give endless handouts. It's just, it's not the way we go. Heck, uh, the Chinese give uh, loans. (laughs) They don't give any money away, whereas we give a lot of money away. But even that era is starting to come to an end. And I would say, just for historical reference and context, that when I was there, uh, 2015 to 2018, virtually anything I asked my government for, I got. And what I gave, or what we gave, what the United States, the American people gave to the Sri Lankans in that time to help them get on their feet, was a fraction of what Japan and India were giving. You know, India has always been an enormous donor to Sri Lanka. So has Japan. So I think the like-minded have already uh, given quite a lot. I think overall American uh, grant aid to Sri Lanka in the past 60 years has been over $2 billion. Our Millennium Challenge Corporation grant aid was going to be over a half a billion dollars of free American taxpayer money to help the people of Sri Lanka live happier lives. So we're not in the game of debt trap diplomacy. We're in the game of building prosperous and happy and healthy societies. Um, at this point, I would say, less turning your question around, it's not so much what we in the IPAF or the Quad or wherever can do for Sri Lanka. It's frankly what Sri Lanka can do for itself. And this is where I go to an old baseball phrase, if you build it, they will come. You know, if you build a an economy based on very sound investment principles, really good regulation, if you 
optimize the conditions for capturing the flows of, of, of investment dollars that are out there. If you create the labor and judiciary and political and economic and macroeconomic conditions that make it very conducive for investors to come, by golly, they will come. And uh, it's really, it's not, you know, secret knowledge. You don't have to go to a monastery and study for 30 years. Uh, Anybody can look at, you know, for instance, the example of Singapore to see how geographical positioning is not just the only criterion for becoming Singapore, you have to apply an enormous amount of diligence and discipline in terms of optimizing your policy framework, and then the world beats a path to your door. So I think in a way, this is a a moment of introspection for Sri Lanka and for the people of Sri Lanka to think about what it would take for them to uh, create conditions that would make them a world-class economy, and, and they could then prosper their way out of their current problems. Atul, I want to I want to turn it around even more and ask you to put yourself in the shoes of uh, the Communist Party in Beijing. How does how <laughs> does China today think of the challenge posed by Sri Lanka? Land of Goshen. I never thought you'd ask me that question. Um, uh, wow. You know, they taught us in, in junior officer school never to answer a hypothetical. <laughs> but, all right. Yeah. All right. Let me let me let me phrase it this way. Uh, you talked about China's loan program, the Belt and Road Initiative. They're pushing lots of money out of the Chinese economy into their neighbors. What are they trying to do in Sri Lanka? Well, uh, I would use the standard diplomatic answer, which is that you have to ask them. But I would also note that there are certain things that you can discern. Okay, look at where they're interested. They're interested in. Uh, countries that frankly have, um, that are economically distressed, that have underinvested in investment, that have, uh, how shall I put it, um, less than optimal standards of transparency. Um, and when you look at those countries, uh, Sri Lanka, Pakistan, um, you look at countries in Africa, you look at uh, even in, in, in the Pacific, in Solomon Islands, uh, look at the example of Malaysia a few years ago. Uh, it's pretty clear that a lot of this Chinese investment and loans, and I won't call it investment, I'll call it loans, because it's really that, uh, is in places that have a profound geographic strategic value, right? Whether it's on the Straits of Hormuz, or it's in the Straits of Malacca, or it's at critical uh, ports and harbors on both sides of the African coastline, uh, or it's on the main shipping lane in Sri Lanka between Hormuz and Malacca, uh, the, in the Babal Mandab in Djibouti. Uh, it is clear that someone in China read Alfred Thayer Mahan at some point and really integrated Mahan's kind of um, doctrine about the importance of controlling the oceans and particularly the Indian Ocean. The Indian Ocean uh, has several major, major check choke points. And uh, if you can control those choke points, you can control global commerce. And so I think a lot of this is happening within a discernible pattern, but I'm not going to you know, ascribe to the Chinese what their motivations are. Let them explain themselves. What I can say, and unless this really makes me you know, feel very disappointed, is that none of this activity in all of these countries where, where they have uh, loaned copious amounts of money has resulted in any kind of economic prosperity. And that's really telling. You know, you look at Pakistan, they're on the verge of a foreign exchange crisis. Sri Lanka, $25 million is all they've got right now uh, in the kitty. Uh, These are profound economic crises after years and years and years and years of taking on Chinese debt. 
All right, let me um, let me ask you another uh, semi-trick question, uh, and and this may mean uh, reflecting on your on your previous employment and the the amazing career you had in our foreign service. Do you feel like our and when I say our, I mean American institutions are ready to grapple with this crisis and crises like these that we see in the world? You know, our our bureaucracy, and I, and I don't mean that at all in a negative way, and I mean in a positive way. Our government entities were constructed largely in the post-World War II era to deal with the challenges of the Cold War. Do we need a, a rethink and a revision of our institutions, such as the State Department and other important U.S. government entities, to be able to grapple with really profound challenges like what we see in Sri Lanka and in the, in the entire Indo-Pacific region? So one thing that I tried to do over the last 15 years of my career was to create a more holistic Indo-Pacific perspective between the East Asia Bureau and the South Asia Bureau of the State Department, uh, to the extent of even cross-posting officers into both geographies, uh, trying to get really you know proficient East Asia officers to come and serve in South Asia and vice versa. And so breaking a lot of that uh, internal uh, bureaucratic crockery was really important. And I think over time, uh, that concept prevailed. Certainly, uh, Shinzo Abe blazed the trail, and I want to pay tribute to him and respect him for his immense policy leadership in uh, talking about the democratic diamond, which led to the quad and his notion that you had to have a holistic view of the Indo-Pacific. Uh, those were very controversial ideas 15 years ago in the State Department. Um, I had a lot of arrows shot in my back <laughs> by people who really didn't want to see East or South Asia come together in a holistic way. But I think by and large nowadays, when you look at U.S. Indo-Pacific Command and you look at sort of the lexicon of how we talk about that region, I think we finally understood the wisdom of um, Shinzo Abe's uh, vision. So that's all good. I'm not one for radical surgery less. I think there are many strong institutions and structures and many strong officers. But what I would say is we need to prioritize. You know, one thing about American foreign policy is we are always chasing the bright, shiny dot. Whatever that dot is, we're like the cat on the carpet looking at the laser dot and chasing that. And whatever, you know, the, what, if you're the Secretary of State, you're always dealing with the immediate crisis, Right. Uh, and that's where the attention and the eyeballs and the New York Times and everybody else is looking at. But in truth, we need to have a far more um, sort of patient and long-term strategy in the Indo-Pacific. And we have to acknowledge the strategic challenge that we're facing. Uh, when I was EAPPDAS, we did our ultimate level best to make sure that whatever happened in the Philippines would not be of extreme adverse uh, 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 impact on American strategic interests. I think we worked very hard and very patiently at that. And so you have to be sort of long-term in your thinking because, frankly, the Chinese are long-term in their thinking. And you've got to prioritize uh, things that may not be the red, bright, shiny dot right now, but long-term really matter. So this goes back to your question about why Sri Lanka matters. Well, it matters. <laughs> Maybe not today, but it matters absolutely 10, 15, 20 years into the future. Uh, why does Mozambique matter or Kenya or Zambia or Malaysia or, or the port of Darwin in Australia or the port of Piraeus in Athens? We've got to keep our eye on the long ball. And this is where I think to a very great extent, our um, State Department and foreign policy apparatus uh, still remains very heavily focused on the Euro-Atlantic um, space, uh, the Middle East, uh, enormous amounts of energy and attention into those two geographies. 
And candidly, not enough into the Indo-Pacific, not into South Asia, not into East Asia. You know, we have consulates in uh, cities in Europe that uh, it just blows my mind that we're not in places like Bangalore. You know, why are we not in Bangalore? Why are we not in, um, you know, places in uh, in Indonesia or in, in Malaysia or Philippines where we could have more presence and more visibility? If you look at just the per capita calculations alone, we ought to have way more resources in Africa um, and in uh, Asia. And so the, and these are very, very strategic geographies. Again, going back to Al- Alfred Thayer Mahan, you've got to, You've got to focus on the long game. Atul, I can't thank you enough uh, for coming on the podcast today and sharing your amazing expertise with our listeners uh, and explaining what is uh, a really, really difficult situation. So thank you very much. May I offer one more uh, minute on the people of Sri Lanka? Yes, please. I think they've been amazing. Um, It is amazing to see their discipline and their determination over 100 days of protests. They clearly feel like they were neglected, if not even ignored by their government, and they are demanding accountability from their political leadership. Uh, I pray that their protests continue to be peaceful and fully within the constitution and democracy of Sri Lanka. And I pray for the peace and happiness and prosperity of all of the people of Sri Lanka. It's a great country. It deserves better. Its people deserve better. And I hope that this all ends in, on, a, on a path toward renewed happiness. Amen. Thanks, Atul. Les, thank you for your time. Always a pleasure to be on your show. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, please send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at masonnatsec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing and Gabriel Otis for production assistance. Join us next week for our first episode in NSI's summer series podcast, Breaking chains fighting the new global repressors. We kick off our series with an interview with award-winning foreign correspondent, scholar of East and Central Asia, and NSI senior fellow, Jeffrey Kane, to discuss the Chinese police state. Don't miss it. 